You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 22nd of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, a state of emergency and a number of unanswered questions in Sri Lanka following yesterday's bombings. My guests Carol Walker and Michael Goldfarb will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Ukraine's election of a comedian, a professional one this time, to its presidency. Brexit, but we'll try to keep it short. And where is the balance between the right of protesters to protest and the right of every everyone else to get where they're going. That's all to come on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the journalists Carol Walker and Michael Goldfarb. Welcome both. And we will start in Sri Lanka, where at least 290 people are now confirmed dead and more than 500 injured in yesterday's Easter Sunday suicide bombings of several churches and hotels in Colombo, Nagombo and Batikaloa. Another blast occurred today in Colombo as police attempted to disarm explosives in a van used by the attackers. No injuries have been reported. Another device has been defused near Colombo Airport. As we go to air, no claim of responsibility has been made, though Sri Lanka's government have blamed a hitherto little heralded jihadi outfit called National Tawhid Jamath. 24 people have been arrested, though details on who they are or why they were lifted are scant. Um, Michael, first of all, on that lack of a claim so far, more than 24 hours after the bombings, is that strange in the the general context of large-scale terrorist attacks? Yes and no. Yes and no. Dur- during its heyday, when there were um, lots of... Uh, ISIS had many wannabes and imitators around the world, every time there was an outrage in you know, sub-Saharan Africa or whatever, somebody would say, we are ISIS. But they weren't necessarily. They were just self-generated. Um, and, and one of the unknowns at this point, it is only about 36 hours since the atrocity, um, is how could a small local group, this Tawhid Jamaat, which, I mean, Tawhid Jamaat means, Tawhid is one God, there is one God, Jamaat is party, so it's the party of one God, on the radar, but not considered to be that big a threat, carries out half a dozen massive bombings. So presumably they had outside help. um, And it's a question of whether there will be a a claim now. I mean, it could be that that both al-Qaeda and ISIS have reached a point in their evolution where they don't feel the need to have immediate claims of responsibility. If indeed, you know, this is, you know, the, the government says this is who did it. It looks like it, but there still needs to be a bit more proof. Frankly. Uh, Carol, on that subject of them being on the radar, uh, they were. Sri Lanka's government has admitted that there were warnings about an attack a couple of weeks ago, though the warnings did not warn of anything on this scale, but no action was taken. Um, which is a well, you, you give them, you have to give them some credit for uh, actually admitting as much. But is this the kind of thing that once people get past the shock and the grief of the attack, that they then start to focus some of that anger on the government, which is 
supposed to, among many other things, protect them from such things. Well, Andrew, I think you have to consider the appalling scale of these attacks. Um, Six coordinated attacks on worshippers, on one of the greatest Christian festivals of Easter, mourners mown down, tourists, holidaymakers in hotels there to enjoy themselves. I've been hearing on the way in um, an account of one man who's lost his wife and children. They were from the UK. And I think when you look at the scale of the bloodshed, 290 people dead. Clearly, at the moment, the country is still in a state of shock. And as you mentioned, a state of emergency has been declared. But we do seem to be hearing more and more about the warnings that were given. A government minister has said that these were passed on to the police. Now, what we don't know is precisely what the warnings were, how specific they were. Um, but clearly, there were no, there was no sense in which anyone was warned of this possible imminent attack. And there, as, as far as we're aware, no precautions were taken. So, yes, certainly, if indeed it emerges that there was intelligence that could have saved even some of the loss of life, then clearly I think there will be anger at this. And it's interesting that the government is already suggesting that there may have to be an inquiry to find out exactly what was known in advance. I think you know, since, um, since the end of the, the Tamil Tiger insurgency and that civil war, I mean, Sri Lanka's fallen off the global news front pages. Well, it wasn't even on the front pages at that point. But I mean, it's fallen out of our consciousness. And I think one of the things that interests me is this idea that um, a minister in the government, not the leader of the government, not the prime minister, came out and said, well, we had a warning. And you begin to wonder, well, what what's the politics here? Are there, are there rival factions, somebody trying to make somebody look bad? But the most interesting thing in these first 24 hours where facts are thin on the ground, to me, is that the one thing the government was able to do was to shut down Facebook, shut down Twitter, and shut down all social media immediately because they said we we were concerned about rumors and untruths flying around. So they put this – Sri Lanka is a country where people communicate on social media. And so immediately this happened. You couldn't get anything on Facebook. You couldn't hear rumors. Well, I mean, this could be good. I mean, if you say – Rumors flying around, it was the Muslims who did it, and so suddenly you have riots against passing Muslims in the street, or perhaps the government had something it didn't want out there straight away. Uh, Carol, it's hard to know what to make of that last thing in particular, the restrictions on social media, which the Sri Lankan government cracked down on very quickly, because it is unarguably the case that following any event, especially an event like this, an enormous amount of garbage starts circulating extraordinarily quickly. I mean, and it's not even after a, a, a... an especial atrocity like this in the in the wake of the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral, for example, any number of idiotic conspiracy theories uh, took flight within minutes. Is this a response we're likely to see more of from governments in future? And is there, in fact, an argument in favour of it? Well, I think there is a very delicate line to be drawn here. I think that instinctively there is a danger in trying to simply close off debate as soon as an atrocity of this scale has happened. Um, Yes, you're right. There are all sorts of uh, extraordinary and potentially dangerous conspiracy theorists who like to get out there and can, uh, in, in circumstances like this, could potentially inflame tensions. Um. 
But these media sites do have moderators. They are supposed to take down any kinds of uh, posts which could be uh, potentially well, there to inflame. Supposed to, but they don't. The, the alternative is, are you going to close down all discussion of it? Are you going to stop newspapers um, putting out what they know about what warnings may have been given? Uh, I, I think that to suddenly start saying, well, as soon as something like this happens, we're going to stop all social media discussion of it, uh, smacks somewhat of a rather repressive regime and would be the sort of response that perhaps those perpetrating these kind of attacks uh, would like to invoke. Uh, I think in a free society, you cannot simply close down discussion of what may or may not have happened, who may or who may not have been responsible. Um, it is a fine line to be drawn, but my own view is that if you suddenly start saying, right, we're going to shut down all discussion of this, um, that's a pretty dangerous route to go down. OK, well, let's move on from that. There will be more on this story on tonight's Daily at 2200, and I'm sure we'll be looking at it in greater detail the rest of this week. Uh, but let's look now at Ukraine. It might reasonably be argued that the precedents of unqualified showbiz yahoos beginning their career in politics with the highest officers of state, notably in the United States and Italy, are not encouraging. These warnings from the present have not dis- Persuaded the people of Ukraine who have elected and by a thumping majority a new president who prepared for the job by pretending to be president in a popular television program. Volodymyr Zelensky, star of Servant of the People, was elected elected rather actual servant of the people with fully 73% of the vote, despite his lack of experience and indeed policies. Um, Michael, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, it's going to be, you know, this is like sugar. These are like sugar highs. You know, it, it and he he would come into office. He's got, you you would say, a mandate. He doesn't even have a political party. He only named his political party today when he woke up and said, "Oh, we'll call it by the name of my television show." Well, of course, um, <laughs> Donald Trump should change the name of the Republicans to The Apprentice. Don't give him ideas. <laughs> he will do. He will do eventually. Look, um, well, we can make generalizations. First, there's no doubt that in most of the democratic world, much of the democratic West, we'll say, career politicians have had decades to to just wallow and ruin and sup at the trough of an, of the public purse. And there's widespread disgust with them. And anyone who can come from out of the pack and have something new about him will or her we, we we await the first woman to do this. Um, will get purchase in because the democratic polities are just so aggravated, and and you know and Emmanuel Macron has to be considered part of this as well. I mean he was nothing. He was thirty eight, thirty nine years old, and then all of a sudden he burst through because he's young and fresh and. What are his policies? Oh, we're not sure, but he's a nice-looking guy. And, oh, we don't want to have Marine Le Pen as our president, therefore we vote Macron. Um, in Ukraine specifically, nobody – I was was is happy was happy about Petro Poroshenko uh, continuing no, in No, well, that, that, that is and, true. And, he, and he, he did the, get sure, roundly spanked. When I, when I report – I was spent much of last September there and – making a program not not about politics but about other stuff you know and but i did talk politics while i was there and i said it's yulia timoshenko or it's petro poroshenko again we're bored with this they're both corrupt and here comes this guy and he's fresh and he's young and he's funny and before you know it you can get 
people behind you. Uh, That word bored, I think, is important, Carol. Why has it happened? And I think it explains a great deal that people, especially in those wealthy, orderly, secure Western policies, have started demanding that on top of everything else, their politics entertain them. Well, it is an extraordinary development, even in these uh, very unprecedented political times in which we live. uh, I think this is the first time we've had someone who is an ordinary citizen who is acting in the part of uh, someone who is propelled to the presidency of his country despite a total lack of politics at the same time that that is happening to him in real life. And I think he is, uh, uh, Petro Poroshenko, the ultimate embodiment of this anti-political mood which has gripped not just Ukraine but many other countries uh, where people feel that there is this political elite which is out of touch with their own concerns, which is failing to address the bread and butter issues which they are confronting on a daily basis and which is fundamentally corrupt. One of the few messages that we got during this campaign was that Petro Poroshenko said that he would tackle the corruption in his country, um, take on the oligarchs. Interesting, um, given that he appears on a TV station that is itself backed by an oligarch. But let's see how far he goes. One of President Trump's very potent messages was that he was going to drain the swamp in Washington. And people want to hear those sorts of messages. Now, ultimately, he will be judged on whether in power he does make any difference, whether he can tackle some of those fundamental points. And I think that will depend on who he manages to get on board. Does he actually have the guts and the power to try and drive this through? But he has been elected with over 70% uh, of the vote. And that means he has got a big mandate for change. What's interesting and specific, though, about Ukraine, as opposed to the other countries I mentioned, is this was not necessarily an ethno-nationalist vote. Um, no, he, he won he, big everywhere except in one place. Except in the, in the most anti-Semitic part of the country. I mean, we haven't mentioned, I mean, the, the winner, Zelensky, is is a Jewish comedian. I mean, he, if he was in America, he'd be at the Borscht Belt. Um, and the one place, the one oblast region of the country that did not vote for him overwhelmingly was Lviv Oblast, which is where my my maternal my paternal grandmother comes from and which is dear to my heart. And Lviv is a lovely city. It is a beautiful it's city. It's a wonderful a great place to visit and one's travel dollar goes much further in Lviv than virtually any place in Europe. I uh, they can send me a check for that. <laughs> but I mean, but look, I should have just corrected myself. I should, of course, have said Zelensky when I was talking about Poroshenko, the previous president. I knew, I knew, but I knew. I Zelensky, of course, okay. is the is the the new man on the block who but, has got to overturn this legacy from Poroshenko, who himself also promised to tackle corruption and failed to deliver. But, Zelensky's got to prove but he's natu- in a different But you know, at, at the time of the Maidan, uh, the Maidan uh, rebellion, I guess it's five years ago now. You know, this was about. Ukrainian nationalism standing up against Russia, bad neighbor in the East, and then Russia invaded. Now, you've got this new guy, Zelensky. What is he going to do? I mean, a third of his country is occupied by Russian troops. Um, the industrial heartland of the country, in fact, although it's in <laughs> it's the pictures, you'd say it's in ruins. Um, 
he hasn't. We have. We don't know what he's going to say. Well, he has said he wants to have a new peace process, and the Russians have already welcomed that. Well, the but Russians what is he going to do? The They're, Russians the are Russians holding are... twenty-four Ukrainian it, sailors for months now that they took off a indeed. boat. You know, and coming out of the sea of us off into the Black Sea, and they've annexed Crimea, and they are backing the troops in the east of the rebels in the east of the country. So, um, how he's going to find a way through that uh, without appeasing the Russians uh, is a very big challenge. There will of course be more on that story on our programmes throughout the week. Uh, we are going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Michael Goldfarb and Carol Walker. Coming up next, there's no getting around it. Brexit is still a thing. Download the free Monocle 24 app today to tune in wherever in the world you happen to be. Whether you're catching up on the news on your daily commute, enjoying a little cultural nourishment during your morning run, or seeking some recipe inspiration around the kitchen table. The Monocle 24 app allows you to tune in live or download your favourite shows to enjoy later. Get started by downloading the Monocle 24 app today. Monocle 24, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Michael Goldfarb and Carol Walker. Tomorrow, British parliamentarians will return from their holidays. Holidays which, many weary voters might argue, have not been nearly long enough. It has been mercifully quiet on the Brexit front for a few weeks now, since the most recent punting of a departure date for which the UK remains more or less entirely unprepared as we approach the third anniversary of the vote to leave. The current departure date, though on form, don't bet too heavily on it, is October 31st. More imminently, we have the glorious prospect of European elections next month, which promise to be a goat rodeo of rare quality. Um, Carol, it it struck me when I realised we were talking about Brexit that it feels like something everyone's kind of lost interest in, like it was a huge dance craze that was all the rage a few summers back. And now everyone's like, oh, yeah, that was, I remember that. Yeah, that was a, but we still have to talk about it, don't we? Well, absolutely. I mean, we've all had a, a brief Brexit breather over <laughs> Easter. Um, Theresa May got that extension out of the EU and Parliament promptly packed up and went on holiday, I think much to uh, many people's relief. But MPs are back and many of the problems remain exactly as they were. Yes, there is this Groundhog Day sense of it about it all. Uh, there is no way through the impasse that appears to have suddenly materialised during the past uh, 
week and a half or so. And if anything, opinions on all sides are even more entrenched. And if anything, the anger and frustration at Theresa May is growing and has grown. Uh, When MPs return tomorrow, there will be moves to try to get changes to the leadership contest so that she could be challenged within her own party. We know that chairman of the grassroots of the Conservative Party uh, are trying to call for a special convention so that they can try and change the rules so that it will be easier to oust her from the leadership of her party. It's by no means clear whether any of these manoeuvres are actually going to work. But I think it is a sign of the huge frustration within her own party. Well, Michael, one exciting development uh, on this front as we approach these EU elections, which are going to be an extraordinary circus. And I I, I do recommend our non-British listeners to to pay attention over the next few weeks if they are connoisseurs of political farce, um, is the unveiling of the Brexit party, the latest vehicle of Nigel Farage. But In early polling for the EU elections, they are a decent stretch ahead of the field. Uh, And, of course, we do have to remind ourselves that one of the reasons we got here was that the UKIP, of which Nigel Farage was leader at the time, won the EU elections in 2014. Could he do it again? It's possible because one of the the moments that seemed interesting about two months ago, and, and, you know, people who follow this from abroad should remember that British pundits, even the best of them, are party pre. You know, it has so infected the minds of the average, not the average, of of all British citizens, including me, um, they, people lose all perspective. There was a moment, oh, this is going to be a big realignment of British politics. And a dozen uh, parliamentarians, backbenchers, um, some of whom had served on front bench, left and started a new party called Chuk. Which Change, what Change UK. Change UK. And which makes it confusing because the first person to break away and the most prominent one is a guy named Chuka Amuna, who is actually not going to be leader. No, no. He's he's resisting taking on the crown. So they've had months, absolute months, to organize themselves in anticipation of these European elections. Because They wouldn't have done it if they didn't think there was a very good chance of slowing the whole process down, getting a further extension from the EU. It was clear there were plenty of signals coming out of Brussels. You can have more time. We we don't want to crash out. Take more time. But you have to hold these elections. So here you have Nigel Farage over here. He's got one message. Me. I'm your guy. And people are going to flock to him and vote for his party. Meanwhile, these dozen or so people are fighting with the Green Party and they're fighting with the Liberal Democrats. And no one has figured out how to unify into a Remain party. And that is an element in how we got here. Because, yes, the Conservative Party is overwhelmingly Brexit. The Labour front bench is intellectually Brexit and trying to play both sides against the middle. And you have the 16 million people who voted to Remain who would love to vote in these European elections for pro-Remain, pro-European, members of the European Parliament, and that vote is going to dissipate. And people are so disgusted that even on the most simple and basic issue, these three or four Remain parties cannot come together that, yes, to answer your question, that was a long way round, Nigel Farage (laughs) is going to do very well. And Theresa May herself said... 
In fact, it's still clinging to this idea that somehow the UK could avoid fighting these European Union elections if she can get her withdrawal deal through. <laughs> and she's claiming that she's going to come back and spearhead these talks with the opposition, which appear to be going absolutely nowhere. At some stage, she's going to have to admit she's got to fight it. But many in her own party are already telling her that they're simply not going to go out and campaign. Uh, just before we move off this topic, I'm, I am regenerating my stock end of Brexit item question uh, and I've been doing this frequently as the date has shifted. I just want a, a, a one or two word answer from each of you. Michael, you first. November 1st. Are we still in or have we actually left? Wolfgang Munchau of the Financial <laughs> Times, the man who puts the blue in Blue Monday, today wrote, you know, they've had it, October 31st, that's it. And he doesn't expect, I don't expect, that British politicians will have reached any conclusion. And consequently, I, I'm now thinking that, yes, on November 1st, we will not be part of the European Union. Carol? I think it's brave to think that we will be. I, I have this feeling, this ghastly feeling that November the 1st, we could be back here talking about Groundhog Day once again into yet another <laughs> extension to Brexit. I suspect you might be right. Uh, but finally tonight, London has in recent days been beset by protests associated with the Extinction Rebellion movement, an environmental activist outfit, though the protests have been more or less good-humoured and peaceful, as has, in general, the police response. More than a 1,000 people have been arrested, a few dozen of which have now been charged, mostly for getting in the way of traffic and or police. While the protests have, or so it should be hoped, attracted an amount of publicity to the cause, they have also revived the debate about the extent to which protesters are entitled to disrupt people trying to live lives and get stuff done without being chanted or juggled at. Um, Carol, they, they, their strategy, they have admitted, is trying to get as many people arrested as they possibly can. And on, on that score, uh, they are succeeding admirably. Does that strategy make any sense? Well, what's interesting is that this has been a very well-organised protest. They did manage to occupy two of the main arteries through London, Waterloo Bridge and Oxford Circus, for the best part of a week. Um, yes, to manage to do it in a good-natured way, having yoga classes, dancing with some of the policemen to the disgust of some of the right-wing press. And they arrange themselves by having what they call arrestables, so that there are people there who are prepared to go off and be arrested. Uh, as you say, that number has now reached more than a 1,000. Um, so that when the police approach and say, right, you need to move or you're going to be arrested, people have an option that they can get out of the way if they don't want to uh, get themselves into trouble with the police and others who are prepared to stick it out, literally stick it out, many of them super gluing themselves to bridges and so on. And they have, through the these extraordinary tactics got themselves a good deal of coverage. They've got themselves pictures all over most of the front pages. And I've been hearing plenty of discussions about their aims of a radical change to the approach to the environment, really big um, cuts to greenhouse gases, effectively down to zero by 2025. Um, so they have certainly seized the headlines. And as I understand it, there's now a debate going on within the movement about where they go to next. Um, Michael, it has been uh, increasingly tetchily pointed out by uh, municipal authorities here in London that this is consuming the time and energy of up to 9,000 police officers who could probably be finding other things to do with their days. Is there a point, not just with this, but with, with any protest at which it does start to become somewhat self-indulgent? 
Yeah. Uh, yes. And on and this particular issue, I mean, it's Earth Day. I've been around since Earth Day was first celebrated. I was around, I was a teenager when they had the first human being in San Francisco. I wasn't there, but I saw the pictures. And, you know, walking through Parliament Square last week, um, it was a bit of a throwback, except people now have dyed their hair blue and purple instead of, you know, wearing it the way they did in 1967. But, you know, to what end? This issue, people know the climate is changing. People know there have been, you know, been meeting after meeting after meeting over decades to try and get what is essentially a trans-global, you know, no boundary can stop what's happening. And honestly, for all of the energy, it would be, John, as if they targeted a bit better. Why, why block London? Okay, so it's the week before Easter, it's empty anyway, nothing but tourists. Well, that's a gross generalization. I was here. But, you know, <laughs> you know look, what, what good does it do? There are places... Well, it's got, the, it's got no, them a lot more discussion on the no, environment over the last few days than saying, I've heard for Paris, quite some time. I what, know they, since, since the, what, since the Paris Accords? Since Trump took America out of the Paris Accords, Carol? Well, when there no, are big I think, events I think, like that, know, obviously people start well, no, talking people talk about, about it. it. It's always on people's minds. But it mind. hasn't been on the political agenda here but, in but the how UK. Is it, but, but here's the point. How is it to be on the political agenda? I mean, the whole point of the Paris Conference and everything else is that it has to be a global thing. And the point that I was, I was getting to was, you know, why this? Why not just go to an office where climate denial, climate change denial is funded from and super glue yourself there and have 100,000 people block the office They're building. probably listening as you say that. And <laughs> then when the, when the police come in to arrest, they won't be as polite. And then you would have proper, proper civil disobedience. Well, on that bombshell, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Carol Walker and Michael Goldfarb, thank you for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Julia Webster. Our studio manager was Cassie Galpin. Music next at 1900. It's The Culture Show with Robert Bound. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.